So just a softball question for you guys. Uh, <laughs> what is the canon? How, how do we define <laughs> that term? So how do we define the canon? Okay, so traditionally in scholarship today, there are three basic positions uh, about the canon. There is the view presented by A.C. Sundberg, which is the idea of this um, closed list, and once the list gets closed, and when does that happen? And for A.C. Sundberg, that happens in the 5th century with uh, the councils. Um, he then would go on, and, and because the Old Testament list has... Um, non, what we would consider non-canonical works in it, he would accept them because this is what the church chose, uh, sort of thing. And that um, it creates some questions for Christians in previous eras. So did they actually have a Bible? Did they have a canon? Uh, he tries to solve that with this um, somewhat fuzzy distinction between Scripture and canon. And, he has, uh, and a lot of this is based on his view of the Old Testament a canon when it came through. The second type of view is uh, represented by those employing canon criticism, so Brevard Childs, and it's, a, it's the idea of, of a uh, functional canon, that it is uh, the whole process from beginning to end of, of the canon. And that, that uh, probably a little bit better way to, to think about it, and that solves the issue of, well, did, did early Christians not have scripture? Uh, did they not have foundational documents? Um, that sort of thing. And what I find is that most uh, academic ivory tower canon scholars take what I call a history of religions or uh, approach to canon. They'll say something along the lines of, of uh, any religion has the right to select its own books uh, sort of thing and while I, I, I don't deny that idea I think in Christianity it's a little bit different and so instead of us having the right to select our books I think that describes our, 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 our duty our task a little bit incorrectly um, there are some who say that the, can, the church is the mother of the canon and I have issues with that. That puts me over the scriptures. I'm uncomfortable there, and you ought to be uncomfortable with me. There. Uh, I am not the one to be in charge. We'd all be piles of ashes. However, um, there is this idea, and uh, the idea of the ontological nature of the Christian canon, that it comes from God. And if that's the case, and if inspiration is part, uh, the defining part, of this, then our job is to recognize the canon. And I think most of the discussion that happens from that standpoint is trying to understand the discussion, trying to understand the disputes, and, and those sort of things. So those are, those are three basic issues, and there's some truth in all of them, just to be honest with you. Um, but I prefer to start with uh, the ontological view of what are these books according to our theology and then work from there. Dr. Mead? <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's a little more difficult going second, I think. But, <laughs> but, but I would agree with much, uh, if not all, of what Dr. Kellum has just uh, laid out for you. 
Um, and one thing that I think that will just kind of continue to arise in this conversation is um, the, the, the whole idea of the ontological canon. Um, as Protestants, and I think we'll get here later, as Protestants, we, uh, I think we can trace our canon back to much of early Eastern and Western Christianity, particularly Greek and Latin Christianity. Uh, it's pretty clear and evident we don't uh, descend from the Syriac church, which only had 22 books uh, in its New Testament. Okay. Uh, and um, not quite the same Old Testament that we have either. Um, and uh, the same thing could be said for uh, the ancient Ethiopian church uh, and even the modern Ethiopian church as well. So it's really tricky, I think, to talk about the ontological canon uh, of the church because we've got some pretty major branches of the church that have just disagreed over the many, many centuries. So I just, right, right up front, I think it's good to be honest about that. Much of what we're going to talk about is the Protestant canon and maybe the Catholic, uh, the Roman Catholic canon. Um, but I think that might be all I can say, because I think, I think Dr. Kellum summarized the rest of the territory there. Well, you know, I think um, in terms of defining what canon is, uh, there are two major ways to look at it. Uh, one, beginning about 1768, is that canon was a list of authoritative books. Uh, and then there is in ancient Christianity where a canon is a, like a rule or a plumb line, uh, a straight line by which all other lines become judged to see whether they're straight or not. Um, and so in early Christianity, say with Irenaeus, and Irenaeus is going to be key for me, um, you know, for Irenaeus, the canon of truth or the rule of faith, the, uh, the canon is the confession of faith that we have that we make in our baptism, right? It's Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20. We see the same thing with Athanasius in the fourth century. This is the scopos or the hypothesis of scripture, um, meaning that you have the body of truth, which is the scriptures themselves, this collection of books, and you have the canon of truth, which is the plumb line that helps us to know kind of which of these books are, are in or out. Uh, so the canon is really the judge for what goes in uh, and only later becomes uh, descriptive of the collection itself. Beginning in about 1768 is probably the first time that you find it used in that particular way, which is the way we mostly use that, in, even in this discussion already, and certainly biblical scholars um, would, use it, would use it in that way, um, as opposed to canon being the rule. Uh, in fact, in a lot of these books, you'll see they acknowledge this is what the word is and kind of way it's used early, and then turn to... Uh, now, you know, which, which are the books that are in? Almost like uh, canon is, uh, for some, canon can be, okay, uh, Obadiah, all right, it's in, I can read it now. As opposed to, um, the, you know, how does Obadiah or why does Obadiah fit within this collection of books that give us this confession of faith? So, quickly, canon is that confession, almost like a creed-like confession of faith, um, that derives from a certain collection of texts. Right? It doesn't just come out of nowhere. It actually comes from the text that then governs which of the texts are we going to continue to interact with um, in order to participate in that particular confession of faith, um, meaning you, you, never, you never abandon the need for the books that gave you the confession, um, and you use the confession as the canon to determine which books you're going you're gonna to read. That's how I would define canon. Yeah, foundational documents. Is well, or, or the faith, 
that comes from those foundational documents that then determine how we're supposed to read the documents and which documents we're supposed to be reading. That, that'd be the way Irenaeus would use the word canon. Yeah. Okay. Uh, just a few follow-up questions with that. Uh, why 1768? <laughs> what, what, what is significant about that date? Yeah, so that's when, uh, it, and this, actually it's uh, uh, Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer publishes this in his uh, uh, classical scholars uh, uh, book, uh, 1968. That, that's the first time that you see with Runkin is the guy's name, R-U-H-N-K-I-N, is the first time that you see canon used to describe the list itself um, as opposed to uh, the faith that that collection of books gives you. Okay, uh, and, and, and it may have been used before then, but that's the first, the first you know, documentable instance that we have someone using canon in that way. And then also to kind of give a little bit of uh, background for some students, what, uh, what are the books that the Syriac canon, the Ethiopic canon have that aren't in our canon? And then maybe what are some of the more disputed books in the uh, Greek and Latin traditions? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we have a, a Syriac canon list from the Monastery of St. Catharines, which most scholars date to somewhere between 350 and 400 AD. This, uh, this, this list contains uh, the Old Testament books and the New Testament books, uh, but for the New Testament it has the four Gospels, Acts, and 14 Epistles of Paul. Um, it's lacking uh, eight books. Yeah, the, yeah, the entirety of the general epistles or Catholic epistles and the book of Revelation. Um, yeah, Noah, that was a good look. Yeah, it's like, whoa. Uh, so, and there's good reasons in some ways for this, which we'll talk about later. Uh, the Catholic epistles were also being disputed uh, in the Greek churches. And so uh, this, is, um, this, is a, this is a fact. But uh, when it comes to um, uh, the Syriac church, eventually the big three Catholics are general epistles. So First Peter, First John, James, these are eventually translated into Syriac and joined to the, the version which we call the Peshitta, which brings it to 22 books. Which is a significant number in, in, in terms of reminds of the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, is, yeah. It makes you wonder if they've got an agenda. You know? Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Except it's just not even printed. The other ones aren't even printed in the manuscripts. <laughs> so. so my question for you on that, on that is also in the Syriac church, they had a, uh, for years, they, instead of the separated gospels, they had the um, diatessaron. Associations, so Tesseron took them years to go through the churches and get that uh, settled. Does that list predate or uh, that, or is it more like fifth century that they finally get the yeah, well, yeah, so good question. The list that I'm referring to um, lists out the four separate gospels. Doesn't okay. mention the Diatessaron. So, um, so yeah, it, it has the gospels in our normal order, uh, if I remember right. Um, but um, but one more development in the Syriac Church. Uh, there was there were multiple Syriac Bible versions. Um, one um, was uh, done in the sixth century by a Philoxenius, and that's the first time that those so-called minor general epistles, so Jude, Second Peter, Second Third John, were translated into Syriac. Okay, is like the 500s was the first time those wound up in Syriac. Um, still not finding their way into the dominant version of the Syriac church, which is what we call the Peshitta. Revelation may have been translated by Philoxenius, or maybe a century later by Thomas of Harkel. 
that history, I think, still needs to be told. So, so yeah, big differences. I, but I, I don't want us to get too sidetracked on that. But does that help? Uh, but uh, let me just say one thing, though. I think the, the disputes, perhaps, of those books in the Syriac churches does show that, um, <laughs> the, the, that their Greek parents were having significant discussions okay, and debates about whether these books should be recognized as canon okay, or, or rule yeah, for, for the faith. Okay, so I, I realized I went off script with that question. I'm going to go off script a little bit with this one, but I think it's going to address some of our it's other questions. Uh-oh. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was just a ruse, all the questions yeah. I sent you yeah. before. Yeah. Um, but let's talk a little bit about how that canon came about. How did we get uh, the Old Testament New Testament canons, which is a way I'm adapting that question that about the Jew, how, they, how the Jews mm-hmm. conceptualize canon and how the early Christians do that. You know, that's a great question. I'm not sure we know the answer to that question, yeah. quite honestly. I mean, the fact is, obviously, and this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls become so helpful to us, that we see um, that not just the books that are in the collection, but even sometimes the, the order of the books or the specific uh, edition of the book that one chooses um, uh, determines how one is going to read the rest of the books. But it's at some point determined by what their faith is, right? So uh, these books produce the faith, and then our embracing and cataloging of them, if you will, collecting them and saying, okay, we're going to read these and no other, is predated by our faith, right? We don't, uh, whether it was the Jews or the Christians, they didn't say, all right, we don't know what to believe. Let's find a bunch of books that we can put together and then see what they tell us, that those books as they were being used, produced a faith. What we find from Jesus, for sure, um, in, uh, in the Gospels, is that uh, the, the so-called Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is at least the Psalms, the Prophets, and the Writings, right? The, the, Psalm, or the, the Law of the Prophets and the Writings, the Law of the Prophets and the Psalms. Um, and, and this goes from the prophet Abel to the prophet Zechariah. So we at least know that there are some parameters of what books uh, are, are going to be there. Now, there are multiple of these law prophets and writings that uh, we would have to sort through. But at some point, we know that was Scripture, right? So for the New Testament church, the New Testament was the Old Testament. That was, that was their Bible. Uh, it was the one that they embraced and that they used and then that Jesus explicates for them, right, uh, at the end of, of Luke, which is one of the most important passages in the Bible for this question of canonicity, I think, is that Jesus, uh, the risen Lord, opens the eyes of his disciples to what this text is about. They had all been reading the Law of the Prophets and the Writings, but they had been getting a different message. In other words, they had a different canon by which they read the same collection of books. Jesus gives them a new canon, that causes him to read these books in a different way. Same thing happens with Paul, right? Paul is this great and knowledgeable teacher of the, you know, the law of the prophets and the writings, the Old Testament, if you will. And then he meets the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, and suddenly these books are saying different things. The exact same words are there, but there's a different canon now, different rule um, that now informs how he's going to read these very same texts. Uh, and then with the New Testament, and, and these guys will have a whole lot more to say about the specifics of it, but with uh, these apostolic writings, right, these texts, 
um, early, very early, you have a collection of Paul's letters which are, which are circulating. You have the fourfold gospel. Uh, so, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're not circulating as kind of four different books, and some people read Matthew and some people read Luke and that sort of thing. But uh, among Christians, they, they circulate as a book relatively early, right? We, we know this certainly by the, by the second century. There is this single book that is uh, the fourfold gospel, as, as Irenaeus is going to call it. So uh, very early, they move from um, the scriptures being simply the Old Testament scriptures, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, to there being some apostolic texts, uh, texts written by the apostles or, or formulating the apostles' faith that uh, coincide with being scripture as well with the, with the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament's interesting because there are a lot of places that uh, some of my, my brothers go that I, I don't think is testable. I uh, don't think that it is it's more legend than, than uh, how was this collection actually put together, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, um, what, I, what I think far more helpful for Old Testament, and I'm going to let, I'm going to pass it. That question is so stupid, Dougal, that I'm going to pass it on to one of my doctoral <laughs> students back here. Uh, so get me off the hook. That's an old joke, you know. Yeah. I'm playing oh, with you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, um, Josephus is really interesting at about A.D. 95. He, um, he will list, he will make a contrast between the books of the Greeks and uh, the books of the Jews. And he says, unlike the Greeks who have myriads of uh, sacred and contradictory books, we have only, I think he uses number 22, does he not? Yeah. And uh, the 22 corresponds Hebrew alphabet, and that's something Jerome picks up later. It's, it's this thing that is moving through Judaism. Remember that Jerome is learning Hebrew by copying manuscripts uh, by work, working as a scribe at a cave in Bethlehem. What a great way to learn Hebrew. <laughs> Tracy, you're going to make us some, um, some pain and suffering is what that sounds like. The... Um, and so by the time we get to Josephus, there seems to be a, a, a I'm going to call it a closed canon, um, there's a set number of books. He uses that, that terminology. That's about AD 95. That's uh, a, a non-Christian era. There is a lot of discussion about the Council of Jamnia. Uh, did they uh, set that? And in many ways, the discussion is, was there even a council of Jewish rabbis in Jamnia, A.D. 95? The Anchor Bible Dictionary will actually deny that it even existed. So there's these, in the New Testament studies, every time you get to a Jew versus Gentile tension, they blame it on the Council of Jamnia and date that book, A.D. 95. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really it's like Elvis at the mall. It just shows up over and over again. But what we see out of the Josephus citation is that there is, in the first century, and it has to predate Josephus, he's, he cites it as, um, as his tradition. And so by that time, there is this, um, there's this set of books. It's not hard to discern what those are. It's the Hebrew Bible. Well, and certainly by the time Jesus makes that, that yeah. statement, yeah. It, it's already there. For Christians then... 
there's a Christian Old Testament, if you will. There, there's an Old Testament, a, a Tanakh, that Jesus is using, that Paul's using, that the early church is using, which, uh, you know, by which one comes to faith. Um, so we know that there was, there was some kind of collection of texts, uh, you know, long before A.D. 95, and, and that, that at least Christians were using as a Tanakh. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, Jack Lewis, uh, probably in the 1960s, uh, finally dispelled the, the myth that there was no council at a place called Yavna or Jamnia. Uh, this is actually a, a win for scholarship because he actually took the time to investigate that uh, all the way back to, I want to say, the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, noticed where it first entered, noticed how it became promulgated, and then he finally went back to the actual sources, rabbinic sources, and not a one of them would call this a council. At best, it is an assembly or maybe a discussion amongst rabbis. But interestingly, in these discussions, there is still reference to disputes over uh, whether the Song of Songs or Ecclesiastes or Kohelet uh, makes the hands unclean. That is, whether it's a scriptural book or not. Do you follow? So at the same time, Josephus is saying, look, we only have 22 books, and this is what every Jew from, you know, from knee-high from a long ago has always believed. At that, around the same time, r- rabbis are actually carrying on disputes about certain books. Slightly later period, Esther is disputed, but I mean slightly, like by maybe two decades, from 90 A.D. Um, ben Sira. Ecclesiasticus is cited as scripture in Jewish writings, right? Just as it is written, just like we would, you know, look to that formula as someone citing scripture, um, the rabbis also seem to at times cite Ben Sira as scripture, though Ben Sira never makes a canon list. They do seem to treat it uh, with high esteem. Jews and especially Christians do, but that's, that's another story. But, um, but Jamnia is not a council. So let's, let's just all covenant together here that we will never ever in our churches talk about the council of Jamnia, okay? Because that just propagates a myth and untruth. And as soon as your, your, your youth or your students go off to UNC Chapel Hill and they start spouting this off, they're immediately told they are wrong. Okay, so we need to be very clear about the facts. Okay, uh, with 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 the church, with the you know parishioners and and church members and and so on. Is that is that clear? Good. I mean, these guys would agree with that, obviously. But I just Council of Jamnia is so prevalent, and we just need to dispel that immediately. And, and misused. Oh yeah. Well, outside of areas that we're talking about here, so yeah. in terms of origin of books and right. uh, just every oh, yeah. time it just oh, yeah. shows up and it's like the trump card that gets laid and it's like, <laughs> guys. That's right. That's right. Well, and the, 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 the other myth that's right next to it is the Council of Nicaea decided the New Testament canon. Yeah. Okay? No list of books. Not a word. Comes out of Nicaea. There's hardly any, maybe none, 
uh, in terms of evidence for discussions about the canon of Scripture at the Council of Nicaea. So, anyways, I, I think I'm glad that question came yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, came the good thing about Jamnia, uh, the fact about Jamnia, is there's no Christians there, so it doesn't have any bearing whatsoever on what we're doing. Anyway, so whether it was there, whether it was a council, whether they decided that, uh, you know, uh, where's Waldo's going to be in, wouldn't matter <laughs> for us because we're, we're Christians. So we well, well let, me, let me also piggyback on something that Dr. Kellum also raised, and that is uh, this 22 books. So Josephus, around 95 AD, says that uh, we only have 22 books that are rightly trusted. There were other books that preserved the record of history of the Jews, and by this, he doesn't name it, but I, I think he means something like the books of Maccabees. Because in his antiquities, Josephus relies firmly upon the Maccabean literature to tell that part of the Jewish story. Okay? So, but, but 22 books from the lawgiver, Moses, to Artaxerxes, Esther, that is it in terms of books rightly to be trusted. The other books are trusted less, but they're still important. They're trusted less. But, but not, they're not to be included amongst the 22. Now, Josephus nowhere there makes the connection between the 22 books and the alphabet. That comes with origin. That's a Christian development that, uh, that, that now the Jews have 22 books patterned after the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which I would ask my, my patristics scholar here to my right, um, uh, and, it, and just my own reading of the sources, um, it seems that Christians did not shed Jewish tradition and Jewish canon. Um, it used to be several decades ago very in vogue to talk about the parting of the ways between Jews and Christians. I think the more and more we study early Christians, the more and more we realize that's not true. In fact, several church fathers who give canon lists make reference to the Hebrew canon, and even the Hebrew numbering of the books, which I think shows me that they're, they think they're receiving the Jewish canon, okay, that Jesus and the apostles themselves would have had. Which would not be A.C. Sunberg's idea. He, his idea was that they received a fuzzy canon from the Jews, an incomplete canon from the Jews. Right, but clearly in the, in the Gospels, um, there at least is a, a clear delineation of what's there. Abel to Zechariah, the Law of the Prophets and the Psalms. So, uh, you know, whatever specifically here or there fits, there clearly is this scripture, which is, and, and as we'll talk about later, which becomes um, not only what forms the Christian community, right? It's this scripture, which makes Christianity, but also then how they're going to uh, delineate between those apostolic texts or purported apostolic texts that they're going to read, preach from, and those they aren't, do they present Christ according to that particular text or collection of texts right there? If not, so you know, we're not going to read Gospel of Thomas or any of these other uh, Gospels that nonetheless may be historically accurate. That's not the question. They don't, it's not that they're denying there's any historical uh, accuracy or veracity to the claims that are made is that the Jesus who is in those books is not the Jesus of the Old Testament, or the Christ of the Old Testament, rather. Uh, whereas in the fourfold gospel, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one from the Old Testament, Christ according to Scripture. All right, so if Jamnia and Nicaea are not authoritative canon lists, when was the canon closed? So 
we've already we've already been jumping around on this one. Um, thanks, Dougal. Uh, so, well, uh, I think, I, and again, it's just simply going to depend on one's definition of canon. So, if you're if you're holding to the Sunberg definition that Dr. Keller or Kellum has already uh, raised, he's looking for a fixed list: these books and no others. Okay. Whenever that takes place, you have a canon. Now, we, we three here would not be the first to criticize Albert Sunberg for this view. Uh, many, many have because they've all seen what, what I think we've seen, and that is that never happens. There isn't sort of this one list that is firmly agreed upon at Nicaea, for example, and that, and that sort of uh, is transmitted through the rest of Christendom. Okay, this, this never happens. And so, actually, very few lists agree on every single detail. Okay? They agree on, on many, many points, but they don't agree on every single detail. And then again, again, how, if, if your definition of canon is so hard or concrete, does that mean there can be no doubts or disputes? So, Dr. Ecker, does, does Martin Luther have a New Testament canon? or not, right, on that definition. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's very unlikely on that definition that Martin Luther even has a canon. And even in, kind, of, kind of interesting with Luther, he refers to Revelation as neither apostolic nor prophetic. Right. And uh, there are, speaking of our conversation about Revelation a minute, a minute ago, and so for us as Christians, as we, as we think about these lists and we think about these disputes, let's understand that there's some Yahoo out there all the time who wants to shoehorn Revelation out of the canon. Uh, this is not a new... I'm not so sure Luther's a Yahoo, but... Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, he might be. I'm talking about, I'm talking about pretty living, important. I'm talking about living Yahoos. I'm, I'm giving him oh, yeah. a, a, a pass on that. that. But there's always somebody out there who might raise a question, this, that, other. Uh, Edward Evanson in the late 1700s wanted to take out almost everything out of the New Testament that had anything to do with the deity of Christ. Yeah, of course, you know, yeah. and so there's, there, is, there is this phenomenon that is going to occur uh, when you have human beings. Well, and the reason, why, the reason why is because his canon is different. Therefore, the books that he includes in the collection is going to be different, right? So if your canon is such that your confession of Jesus is he is someone other than God the Son, then those um, writings that purport to, or that do present Jesus as um, the, God the Son, you're not going to include those in your collection because the canon is what precedes the collection, even though it's the writings themselves that produce that canon. So, uh, you know, they're, they're in, in a sense, the canon, if we're going to see it as what is the confession of Jesus as the Christ according to the scriptures, the Old Testament, I mean, that's closed early. Paul's preaching that, before, like before he writes Romans, you know, he's, I mean, he's leading people to Jesus with no Roman road. He doesn't say, now look, so when I write Romans, I'll be able to lead you to Jesus. But arm, until yeah. then, maybe you have to go to hell or whatever. He doesn't do that. Uh, uh, not that way. Uh, but, you know, he doesn't mean it that way, right? So he's, he has a canon. And, then the, and here's what happens, I think, to, to Dr. Mead's point, is that as the church is doing the church and being the church and um, engaging with writings uh, they're saying these writings provide us with this th thesaurus, right? This treasury of Christ. 
And then along the way, they're like, yeah, but, you know, not to the same extent as these others do. So let's focus on these. And you see, you, you see sometimes books go in and out of, of vogue, if you will, or usage. Because the goal of the early church, it seems to me at least, was not to just come up with the list of authoritative books. Because you don't have, you don't have this leather-bound volume in quite the same way that, that we do it. We think about it as, I go buy, buy a Bible at the, at the bookstore, and here it is. What books are in here and what books aren't? I look in the table of contents. But they weren't operating like that, right? So they're saying, what am I going to preach next week? Well, next week I'm going to preach the Shepherd of Hermas. This is great. And then they preach it, they get to the end, they're like, you know what, maybe next week let's not do this, right? Let's preach a different book. Because they discover along the way what the goal is to encounter God through Jesus Christ, who's presented to us in these writings, and they discover that some of these writings just don't, they don't present Jesus in that way, or they don't become valuable or useful to encounter God in that particular way through these, through these texts, and so they stop using them. And so in a sense, you don't have a, it, when you get a closed canon is when you start printing things and binding them, because then you, you really got to pick, I, I got to put something in this particular book versus another book, and in that sense, everybody starts closing their own their own individual books. Martin Luther does have a canon, just a different kind of canon, because if, if you're binding things, you got to pick what goes in the bind, with, you know, between the, 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 you know, the maps and the table of contents, if you will. So when all the king's men in 1611 yeah, that's right. ba- ba- bound those apocryphal books between two covers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. um, yeah, but I don't know if they thought they were canon, though, did they? Well, that's yeah, that's a good, that's a, a great question. But they they are a canon. I mean, they are they are a book, a collection of books, based on some on some confession of faith that uh, have not that that confession's not only shaped which books they put in there, but then those books are going to shape what the confession's going to look like afterwards, and and it does. Okay, well, that... I one of the written questions. Uh, well, well, those were all from the written questions. I don't know questions. we got a date of when it's closed then, but... Yeah, so the because, 1798. No, I was going to say 1611. 1611, yeah. Just kidding. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> when was Broadman uh, published? Right? <laughs> you, you guys basically answered half of, like, four of my questions all at once. So, um, so I, I've got time for one more question, and... Because of the ending of that, I don't know whether I should ask, why do uh, Catholics and Protestants have different canons, especially the Deuterocanonical books? Or more importantly, I think this is the one I want to ask, is should Protestants read those Deuterocanonical works and maybe even those which were bound at the end of the New Testament, like the Didache and Hermas, since we mentioned both of those? Is there any benefit, and should they read them? Yeah, let me, let me just say real quickly, I say yes. Uh, many of these books date from contemporaneous times uh, and predate Christianity as well, the Maccabees uh, sort of thing. Very valuable historical uh, books. Maybe why they're in, in included. The, um, the, the, the um, reading and scripture um, just can't be equated. We're going to read scripture in a little bit in, in a lot different way than we're going to read, say, uh, Josephus, or we're going to read um, uh, some of the Maccabees, that sort of thing. Yeah, we've got to. In fact, we have whole doctoral courses on the Second Temple literature, just so that we know the the background uh, of these things. Now, there's a whole big discussion on then how do you use that material, but that's a, that's a different question. Yes, we should read them. I'm just going to read. Uh, 
I'm going to read Athanasius. Um, I, th I think I think this is helpful. Um, I know I'm on camera here too, right? Um, but I but I think I think that um, um, it shows not only a historical datum or a data point uh, in terms of how the canon canonical books were were, th were kind of thought to relate to these other books. Um, but I have, it is interesting that much of Protestant retrieval of the canon and scripture, I think, falls along these lines uh, if you're reading 16th century uh, confessions, uh, Protestant confessions, like the 39 Articles or the Belgic Confession or, or these, these sorts of things, or even, even the, the Luther Bible uh, translation from 1534. I think they fall out along these lines. Let me just read it. Athanasius, after giving a, a full canon list for Old Testament and New Testament, he says, but for the sake of greater accuracy, I add this, writing from necessity, there are other books outside of the preceding which have not been canonized, right, that's important, which have not been canonized, but have been prescribed by the fathers to be read to those who newly join us and want to be instructed in the word of piety. Then he lists them, the wisdom of Solomon, the Wisdom of Sirach, Esther, Judith, Tobit, the book called Teaching of the Apostles, which we call the Didache, and the Shepherd. He continues, Nevertheless, beloved, the former books are canonized. The latter are only read. And there is no mention of the apocryphal books. He doesn't even bother to list them. Rather, the category of apocrypha is an invention of heretics who write these books whenever they want and then generously add time to them so that by publishing them as if they were ancient, they might have a pretext for deceiving the simple folk. So what you have here in Athanasius is what we might call a trinary description of religious literature. He has canonized books or what we call canonical books, clearly. He just listed them. And then he also has this category of apocrypha. He doesn't give us examples, but surely something like Gospel of Thomas would, would fit this category in the 4th century. And then he has this middle category, books neither canonized nor apocryphal. And they are useful and good to read to new believers. I don't know about you, but I've never done that in my local church, <laughs> taking the time to Just read something like the shepherd or the, well, maybe the Didache, the first yeah. six chapters. But, but, but we, haven't re we don't really do that. In fact, we're like trying to hide those books from, our, from the new converts, aren't we? And Athanasius is like, hey, we should actually read these. But I do think he has a, dis a distinction. These illustrate piety or true religion. They don't actually establish it like the canonized books, you see. So an, uh, one example I use here is 2 Maccabees chapter 7, which is a wonderful example of piety or fearing God over fear of man and death, okay? And you've got these uh, seven sons of this mother uh, who all step up to the plate, as it were. They refuse to eat pig, uh, pig meat, uh, and Antiochus Epiphanes throws each and every one of them into the, into the furnace, Right? Um, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I, 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 my faith is strengthened to, to fear God rather than man, just about every time. 
Now, I know I can get there from, from other canonical stories, but I think this just exhibits something that is so true in the canonical books, doesn't it? Sounds very much like Daniel 3. But, but it's just sort of, it, it's just sort of it's, what, what I would say is it's part of the stream, right? It's not part, the, Maccabees is not part of the fount, the, canon, the canonical books, but it's part of the stream coming from those canonical books. And I think that's a helpful distinction uh, to keep in mind. So should we read these books in public worship, I think, is the harder question, Dougald. Um, maybe, probably not, is what I would say. But should they be uh, looked at, read in our churches? I, I, I think it would be more helpful than not to have folks in the church be exposed to these things. Again, before somebody else exposes them to them, and uh, they don't know what to think about them. Well, I, and uh, Dr. Mead uh, stole my thunder on Athanasius. He's, <laughs> he's my man. I appreciate, I appreciate that. Uh, he's going to quote him a heart. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. appreciate that. But to, to kind of coincide, certainly to agree with, with Athanasius on this point, they're also just great, they're cool books to read. I mean, if you've never read Tobit and Bell and the Dragon, I mean, these are some great books just to read. They're awesome. But here, here's a distinction that I think one of the reasons why, as uh, and let's just say as evangelicals, um, why this becomes challenging for us is because we oftentimes end up treating the books that are in what we'll call it the canon, but what we, scripture, we end up treating those books the way that Athanasius, I think, is, is, is suggesting we should treat these uh, non-canonical books. We can just share that same language for a second, or non-scripture. In other words, we read, say, Maccabees as uh, this you know, example to strengthen our faith and to encourage us and that sort of thing. The problem is, that's the way we're reading the scriptures, when instead of reading the scriptures as this place where we uh, understand, know, and encounter God through Jesus Christ. So instead of reading Daniel as though it is this eschatological text about the, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, or whatever, this message about the faith, we treat as though as an example of how we should follow the three Hebrew children, or we should be like Daniel, and we should... Well, we have Maccabees to tell us how to do that. Or we have the, the Shepherd of Hermas, which is one of the coolest books that you can read. It's crazy. It's completely out of, out of control, but one reason you should read it. But you don't preach that because it doesn't give us the faith. It gives us examples of how we should live. The problem is we don't need those because we've already turned Scripture into just an example of how we should live as opposed to Scripture. If we're going to go back, so I'm going to answer the question is, maybe we should read them. If we're first going to start treat, treating Scripture as Scripture, instead of just examples of how to be a Christian, then we can read these other books on how to be a Christian, but we don't need, we don't need uh, the Shepherd of Hermas other than it being kind of cool, or Tobit, or whatever, because we already are treating the Bible that way. Um, but if we're going to treat Scripture like Scripture, as though it is this message of our faith, uh, you know, the one God, the Father, the one Lord Jesus Christ, the one Holy Spirit that we confess in our baptism. And if, if the canon that we confess in our, in, in our baptism and confess weekly as we come together as Christians is derived from those texts, which we consider to be Scripture, and then we're going to look for these places where uh, that faith, whether it's incipient or what, but that faith finds its expression uh, in examples that we can follow in these non-canonical or non-scripture books, then I think it's a wonderful thing for us to, 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 to go and to do. But we need to establish scripture first 
before we can say this is helpful, this is not apocryphal, right? Uh, things that you shouldn't be reading because they're, you know, the Gnostic Gospels or the Gospel of James or, or yeah, Peter, we, Paul, we don't or Mary, read whatever. them in the same way, you know. Read, read the, the non-Scripture writings in the same way? or right, the Yeah, right. exactly, yeah. exactly. Because we're reading Scripture as the, the, the faith, the source, the fount of our faith, as opposed to the exhibition of our faith. We get that somewhere else. One of the things I make my um, doctoral students do in our mentorship is read Tertullian on against Marcion. It's fascinating in both his rhetoric and uh, and and a, a picture of his concept of of the scriptures. Fascinating read, and in fact, I would say for a lot of the the early church fathers, I find just refreshing. Yeah, and, and in fact, if with that, if I can leave you with one thing, so that, so that I don't I don't end up um, uh, not saying this, I don't. Well, is the demonstration of the apostolic preachings by Irenaeus is one of the most important and significant early Christian texts to 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 affirm what you're saying there from the standpoint of here you have the gospel presented, the apostolic preaching or the canon presented solely from the Old Testament, no New Testaments needed. To, to get the message of the gospel. Uh, and that is greatly refreshing to read the Old Testament in that way.